Is it possible to derive a moral precept or a rule from objective facts? This question is often answered negatively using a formula like this. You can't get an ought from an is. So there's a separation between the world of empirical facts and then subjective values. And this separation goes back to the 18th century uh, to a guy named David Hume, if you're interested in reading about him. It's a key plank in modernism. If the facts of life don't suggest any particular moral values, then we are free to invent uh, new moralities, to think outside the box with regard to old-fashioned moral rules. This purging of old-fashioned morality was given an extra shove in the 19th century by thinkers like Marx and Nietzsche, who tended to characterize moral rules as uh, fictions imposed by the powerful to keep those powerless people down, to keep the disenfranchised from getting out of line and giving it a kind of divine sanction to it. But the question about that I'd like to ask is, is it true? Is it true that you can't get a knot from an is? No, it's not. But don't just take my word for it. For example, tonight, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences will give out its annual awards. Are they going to give out awards at random, based on subjective feelings or the powerful, maybe a little bit of the latter? But I think in general we know, and it's expected, that good movies will exhibit certain traits. They'll be noticeable. They'll have good acting, good directing, good editing, good soundtracks, good cinematography, good plots, right? When someone like Clint Eastwood sets out to make a movie, he has in mind certain things that movies ought to be. I'm making a movie. That's a fact. Movies are certain things. What makes one good? Well, you ought to do certain things. So the fact that the movie is implies certain oughts, unless you want to make a bad movie, which most of us wouldn't want to do, I don't think. And again, it's not just Clint Eastwood's subjective opinion on this. He's won four Academy Awards, and he's directed five actors and actresses who've won Academy Awards in his films. So clearly he shares the same idea with lots of experts on what makes a good film. Now, when Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd, I think we tend to focus on the shepherd part. And I've heard lots of quips over the years. Uh, we, we celebrate this every year on the fourth Sunday of Easter. Uh, the sort of unflattering insinuation that we're sheep, that we are uh, not very intelligent and maybe not very docile to the shepherd and so on and so forth. Um, but let's just let's say this idea of a shepherd is something that goes back to the ancient world, uh, that rulers are always called shepherds. They, this was a typical thing. The key thing I'd like to focus on is why is Jesus the good shepherd? Because we have to look at what shepherds do, and then we'll know what makes him the good shepherd. Because we can get uh, what you ought to do if you're a shepherd from the fact that you're a shepherd. So first of all, there were bad shepherds. Jesus is distinguishing himself from those who didn't equip themselves properly according to their roles. Who were they? Uh, almost certainly the priests of the time, the religious authorities, the scribes, even the Pharisees, who weren't maybe technically 
uh, deputed to be religious authorities, but they were considered to be holy men. But what separates the good from the bad? Why does he make this contrast? What are good shepherds supposed to do? Well, I would say a good shepherd has a large and healthy flock, let's say. And this involves making sure that there's lots of good pasture and that it's safe to to graze there. Now, it's worth noting that the wolf against whom this good shepherd is guarding us is not a physical wolf. Uh, If it were, having the good shepherd lay down his life wouldn't necessarily be of much help. Right? If a literal shepherd gets himself killed by the wolf while guarding his flock, well, once he's dead, the sheep are very much at the mercy of the wolf and his buddy wolves, right? So the fact that our Lord lays down his life for the sheep must be an indication that the enemy is not a physical one, but a spiritual one. And in fact, the letter to the Hebrews clarifies and offers a very concise explanation of this point. Jesus partakes of our human nature, he says, that through death he might destroy him who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong bondage. So the enemy is the tempter, and his weapon is the fear that we have of dying. He deceives us about the nature of our mortality, And I I use the word nature there, by the way. This goes back to my opening philosophical illustration. Mortality is a fact. Each of us is going to die. We've known lots of people who've died. And if my opening discussion of facts and values was correct, then the factual nature of our mortality implies an ought. It implies a set of moral standards. We can have a good death or we can have a bad death. What the Good Shepherd teaches us is that we need not fear death, and that fear of death is the weapon of the devil, the evil shepherd. So what is the difference between a good death and what we used to call a happy death? The answer, of course, is faith. When it comes our time to die, do we trust God? Do we hand ourselves over to him? Jesus lays down his life to take it up again, and he shows us that death is not the end. We don't have to fear death. That's not the end of our life. It's the beginning of our eternal life. It's the continuation, perhaps, of our eternal life that we received in baptism. A happy death is one that we prepare for by strengthening our faith and the other virtues so that when our mortal bodies come to their end, we are able to place ourselves on the shoulders of the Good Shepherd to be carried home. But we can start doing that now. And to illustrate this, I want to look at one last aspect of a good shepherd, maybe even an excellent shepherd, one that excels, not just good, but one of the best. What would he be like? When I lived in the world, I had the good fortune to be a renter from two different landlords who were excellent gardeners. And whatever they touched seemed to spring to life. The vegetables that one of of my landlords grew were larger and tastier than anybody else's certainly better than anything I could grow, even after watching him for a long time. The reason for this is that while I have some basic knowledge of what plants need, I can tell when they're stressed out and they need water or they need fertilizer, um, when pests are uh, getting to them or whatever, an excellent gardener seems to know the nature of these crops sympathetically from inside, you know. Another example would be a great animal trainer. 
An animal trainer not only gets to know the breeds with which he's working, but the individual animals. Right? Every individual animal has its own kind of personality. And if you want that animal to flourish, you have to understand it. You have to speak its language, as it were. The good shepherd knows his sheep. And he, he knows us as he knows his father intimately. At any moment we wish to, we can tap into this reality that we are known, that we are loved and treasured. We are protected. We are healed by one who knows us from the inside, knows us better than we know ourselves. And just as an excellent animal trainer uh, sees the potential in the animal that the animal itself can't see and brings out the very best in that animal, Jesus Christ sees in us our eternal potential, what we are going to be in eternal life. And he is perfectly willing to train us in spiritual excellence if we hear his voice and follow him and, crucially, let go of and lay aside the fear of death. Accepting death and uniting ours to Christ, we can be sure that we will already begin to rise again to gain a new spiritual way of seeing the world. Let us then keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the Good Shepherd, and ask him to inspire our faith and to perfect it.